0: Back in 2004, I had the opportunity to go down to Brazil for a couple months for a summer missions trip, and it was really a great experience in many different ways. I mean, we saw God do a lot of amazing things, and, and Brazil is an amazingly beautiful country, if you've never been there. Um, it, it's just an amazing place, and one of the realities, though, of ministering or even just visiting a different culture like Brazil is that many other countries speak a different language than we do here in America, here in America, we obviously speak English as the primary language. But you go to Brazil, and the primary language there is Portuguese. And that presented a bit of a problem, because I did not know any Portuguese before I went. And during the two months there, I learned a little bit, but not all that much. I mean, like I said, I definitely learned a little bit. I learned that, that classic phrase of, where's the bathroom? Because I think wherever you go, you need to learn that phrase. Uh, But I also learned how to read uh, menu pretty well and how to order food because, you know, you want to eat when you're in another culture, and Brazil does have some very good food. But otherwise, I didn't really learn that much in terms of Portuguese. I was certainly not fluent in Portuguese by the end of those two months there. There was one phrase that really helped out, though, and the phrase was this. Você fala inglês? What that means, você fala inglês, that means, do you speak English? English. Because if they spoke English, then we had a great chance of being able to have a decent conversation. If they didn't speak English, I was kind of in a bad position then. I couldn't really communicate much with them. But thankfully, we were ministering mainly on college campuses. And so many of them did speak English and actually were excited to uh, be able to speak English with someone who is fluent in English. But like I said, during my time there, I did not become all that fluent in Portuguese, though. But during my last week in Brazil, uh, when the missions trip itself was over, I went to visit a friend uh, in a different city in Brazil. Uh, A friend from college, his name was Luke. And he was a missionary down there in Brazil, had already been there for a few years. And Luke, by that time, had become quite fluent in Portuguese. I mean, he could carry on lengthy conversations in Portuguese about a variety of different topics. But it got to the point where he wasn't just speaking Portuguese that he was actually thinking in Portuguese. When he would dream at night, his dreams would oftentimes be in Portuguese. There were times I'd be talking with him, and he would struggle to to come up with the English word, the Portuguese word was the one that wanted to come out. And that's kind of what it's like when you become fluent in a language, like he was fluent in Portuguese. It flows. It comes naturally. It's fairly smooth. You don't have to work really hard in order to, to speak that because you're fluent in it. Now let me transition a little bit and then in a minute we're going to bring all this stuff back together. Here at Freedoms we talk a lot about the gospel. The gospel is a word that literally means good news. And the gospel, the good news that we are talking about is the good news of Jesus Christ. That even though we are broken and sinful and rebellious and separated from God in our natural state because of our sin, God in his great love for us sent Jesus in order to live a perfect life, in order to die on the cross, to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins. And then in order to be resurrected, in order to finally defeat sin and death. And the cool thing is, the best news of this all is that Jesus passes on that victory to any and every one of us who will place our faith in him so that we can have reconciliation with God and new life. That's really the essence of the gospel. And I think many times, though, we tend to reduce the gospel into kind of this get-out-of-hell-free card. That we think, well, the gospel is very relevant when we're in church. The gospel is relevant when I'm reading the Bible. The gospel is relevant when I die and I'm standing before God and I uh, want to get into heaven. But we, we sometimes lose sight of, of the magnitude and the greatness of the gospel. The gospel is kind of like a pool. Keep, stick with me for a minute on this metaphor. The gospel is kind of like this pool. At one end of the pool is a zero-depth entrance where a little child can safely walk into the end of the pool, walk around the water on that end without any problem. But then on the other end of the pool is like this Olympic-sized swimming pool that's deep, it's wide, it's long. You can have an elephant swimming in that side of the swimming pool and still not touch the bottom. That's kind of what the gospel is like. The gospel is simple enough that even a child can understand it but it's also deep enough and rich enough and so profound that a biblical scholar could spend her entire life studying the gospel, working on applying the gospel, and still at the end of a lifetime of focusing on the gospel, still not come to the end of all the richness and glory of the gospel and learning how it applies to all parts of life. So the gospel is rich and deep and glorious. And today we're reading a series called Gospel Fluency. You have the idea of fluency, of being able to speak a language uh, proficiently, smoothly, easily, naturally. But we're talking about gospel proficiency, where we take the gospel and not just the language and words about the gospel, but the concepts and really the motivations behind the gospel and talk about how do we become fluent in the gospel in terms of understanding it, in terms of applying it to our lives, in terms of communicating the gospel. Because I think that for many people... Many Christians, their fluency of the gospel is kind of like my limited fluency of Spanish when I was in high school. Many of you either probably have taken some foreign language in high school in the past, or maybe you even currently are. And I had two years of Spanish in high school. It was enough where I knew a decent amount of vocabulary, knew the basic grammar, and I knew enough where I could sort of carry on a little bit of a conversation. I remember there were times in Spanish class where I'd have to stand in front of the class and have a conversation in Spanish with my teacher or with a fellow student. And it was never a smooth, natural, easy conversation. Because here's the process that had to go on in my mind because I was not fully fluent in Spanish. If I wanted to say something, I'd have to think of it first in English. Then I'd have to translate each word into the appropriate Spanish word. Then I'd have to say it. And when the other person, if they weren't the teacher, they were probably going through that same process then coming back at me in Spanish. And then I have to take that, translate each word in my mind in order to comprehend what's being said. It's not a smooth process, and it's not natural, and it's not easy. That's, That's what happens when you aren't very fluent in something. I think many times we as Christians, we know the basics of the gospel. But at the same time, they haven't really sunk in to the degree where we can communicate them really well, where we can talk about what the gospel's relevance is to all of life. We may be able to talk about how the gospel gets us to heaven and reconciles us with God, but do we, are we really able to take the gospel and when we read the newspaper about some tragedy going on on the other side of the world or some war or about some new product that's coming out or some affair that someone had or something like that, are we able to look, read the newspaper and read it through the lens of the gospel and instantly be thinking about, okay, what's the gospel's relevance to what I'm reading in the newspaper? Are we able to, to look at our workplace and think about as we go to work, as we're at work, as we're doing our job, as we're interacting with coworkers, are we able to, to clearly see and understand and apply how the gospel applies in our workplace, in our friendships, our marriages, our hobbies? When we watch the Green Bay Packers do we have any idea how the gospel can or should influence how we watch the Green Bay Packers even this afternoon? God wants the gospel to influence everything, and it really can and should. But in order to understand that depth of the gospel's influence in every part of life, we have to become more fluent in the gospel. And my prayer for us through this series is that we will get to the point where the gospel just becomes second nature, that without trying, we are able to instantly relate the gospel to all realms of life, to all sorts of conversations. Because when you're fluent, you're able to do that. When you're not fluent, I mean, I could ask, I could find out very quickly if, if people in Brazil could speak English. I could find out where a bathroom was. I could order a limited selection of food. But I was pretty limited on the topics I could talk about. But when you're fluent in Portuguese, you can talk about all kinds of topics. When you're fluent in the gospel, you can also talk about how the gospel and live out how the gospel influences all realms of life. So today we're beginning a series on gospel fluency, and we're looking at the book of Philippians. We're actually, over the next nine weeks, walking through Philippians. So I invite you now to turn your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along, you can grab one from the, from the pew or the chair in front of you. Philippians is a letter from the Apostle Paul that's in the middle of the New Testament. And Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul somewhere around 60 to 62 A.D. or so. And like I said, it's a relatively small book. It's a very joyful book. It's a very gospel-saturated book. The word gospel appears uh, in, in Philippians nine different times. But more than that, the concepts of the gospel uh, permeate everything that Paul is talking about here. Now, if you're like me, like I've been for a lot of my life, I've struggled to remember, how do you know where Philippians is in here? I mean, we know, I mean, it's not right at the beginning, it's not the end, it's in the middle, but it's kind of in the midst of these other relatively small books there, especially Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It can kind of get confusing of which one comes first and then which one's next. Well, a very helpful phrase that I use, um, I still think of it sometimes, Uh, it's kind of like an acronym, it's GE Power Company. In uh, the initials of that, G-E-P-C, um, I used to remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So you can use that if you want, but I think it's a helpful way to remember the order of these four books that are all crunched together and all relatively small books. But we're looking at Philippians today, specifically verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. And we're talking about gospel fluency here. And we're talking about through the entire series. So before we dig in, will you please pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ into this world to die for us. God, that's the truth that if we've been around here for any length of time, we've heard many, many times. I pray that you will help us today and in the coming weeks to go deeper in our understanding of the gospel and deeper in our application of the gospel and deeper in our ability to communicate the gospel to others around us. So please guide us today, Lord, uh, guide us through your word and through your spirit as we look in Philippians chapter 1, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to start out just reading the introduction of the letter in verses 1 and 2. There Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is the introduction of the letter. It's a standard greeting uh, for Paul's letters. It's actually a quite standard greeting for any letter that would be written back in that era in the Middle East. Uh, Paul starts out saying, Paul and Timothy. I mean, it's Paul writing it. Timothy is there with him. They're servants of Christ Jesus. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And he says, Together with the overseers and deacons. So we, so, we see here the recipients of this letter, and it says, To all the saints. And I think we need to clarify what this means. Because many times when we think of saints, we think of people who are put up on a pedestal who are super spiritual. I mean, those people especially who have been dead for hundreds of years and have received sainthood. We need to understand that when, when Paul is talking about saints here, he's not just talking about some super spiritual people. He's talking about all Christians. So when he's writing this letter, it's not as if he's saying, okay, everyone here who is super spiritual, you guys need to listen up to what I'm writing here. And if you're just a normal pew-sitter, then you can just tune out for a little while because this isn't about you. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying if you're a Christian, if you want to follow Christ, listen up. And you may think, well, how's this work for us all to be called saints? Because I think about my my husband or my wife or even myself, and, I mean, we're certainly not saints. Um, What's this talking about? Well, to be a saint, it means to be holy or to be set apart. And in God's eyes, when we come to faith in Christ, because of what Christ has done for us, and because when you are a Christian, you have received the righteousness of God to your account, in God's eyes. That means that when God sees you, he doesn't see the sin. He sees the righteous, righteousness of Christ that has been credited to you. And so you are, in God's eyes, a saint. Now, that may sound kind of strange, but you are. And I am too, if if our faith is in Christ. Now, there is the other reality that we are still growing in our holiness through this lifetime. But in God's eyes, we are already pure and holy and blameless because of Christ. So that's the introduction. I want to move on here uh, to verses 3 through 11, the, the beginning of the body of the letter. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now That your love may abound more and more in love in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now there's a lot here in this passage as there is throughout the Bible, but the main thing I want to focus on here in terms of gospel fluency is to recognize that gospel fluency fills us with love for fellow Christians. Gospel fluency fills us with love for our fellow Christians, and we have to recognize the gospel is based in love, It's based in God's love for us for John 3:16 "For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See the gospel is rooted in God's love for us that sent Christ, and we receive that love and as we receive it, we're called to pass on that same love to those around us. And so the gospel fluency, when we become truly fluent in the gospel and knowing it and applying it and communicating it, we are going to be characterized by love in everything that we do. And and we see throughout this passage Paul's language of love being expressed in a variety of ways. He says, first of all, I thank my God every time I remember you. He's thankful to God for them. And that's an expression of his love and appreciation for them. He says, in all the prayers I pray for all of you, I always pray with joy. He's joyful that he knows them. He's joyful whenever he thinks of them. That's an expression of love. He says, later on, I have you in my heart. They're they're very near and dear to him. He says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He has this affection, this care for them, and this longing. He's talking about he wants to be with them. And when you love someone, and you enjoy being around someone, you don't just want to have a distant memory about them. You don't even just in today's world, you don't just want to talk with them on the phone or on email or on texting. You want to be in their presence. And that's what Paul wants with them. And we even see the language of love in his prayer. that He's praying that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. He wants to see them grow in their love for God and their love for other Christians. And so we see language of love throughout this passage. And you may be asking, okay, why is there so much, or why does Paul have so much love for the Philippians? Well, we have to think back about 10 years before we see in Acts chapter 16 that Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, went to Philippi. He spent some time there and he saw God do some amazing things among the people there. For instance, there was a woman named Lydia, a very wealthy woman, a businesswoman. And Lydia, after talking with Paul about the gospel, she came to know Christ. Not only her, but her entire family did. And they showed great hospitality and care for Paul and his traveling companions. And then soon after that, there's this young slave girl who experienced transformation through Jesus. As a result of that, though, Paul's thrown into prison. But through a wild set of circumstances, the, the head of the prison, along with his entire family, also came to know Christ. And that formed the, the nucleus of the growing church in Philippi. And so Paul has very fond memories of his time and of the people in Philippi. We know that he went there at least one other time between that first time and when he wrote this letter. So he, he cares for them very, very deeply. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. But we have to recognize that this Philippians is not simply just some sappy love letter between the Apostle Paul and the church in Philippi. It's a letter that's meant for us today. And part of its, its purpose is to help us to grow in our fluency in the gospel. So remember, gospel fluency fills us with the love for fellow Christians. And Paul points out here that one of the main reasons that it helps us to grow in that love for fellow Christians is because the gospel put, makes us teammates, puts us on the same team as other Christians. Look with me back to verse 5. Actually, backing up to verse 4. In all my prayers... For all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This idea of partnership is the idea of teamwork. It's a Greek word that you may may be aware of. It's the word koinonia. Oftentimes koinonia is translated as fellowship. But in today's Christian subculture, oftentimes fellowship becomes watered down. And when we think of fellowship, we just think of, okay, anything that we do with other Christians is fellowship. So if you have a barbecue and you invite some Christian friends over and you're hanging out, you think, oh, that was some really great fellowship. But then if you have a barbecue with the exact same food, the same length of time, do the same things with non-Christians, then you say, well, that was some nice time together with friends. Or you may say, well, that was some nice outreach, but you would not typically call that fellowship in today's language. Or think about coming to Church. I mean, you come to church on a Sunday morning, and if you have someone who just attends a service and doesn't really stick around afterwards for refreshments or to talk, but they just come to the service and leave, you'd say, well, they, they attended the service. But if instead someone comes to the service and then goes into fellowship hall, grabs some refreshments, grabs some coffee, has 10 minutes of conversation with others here at the church, you say, well, that was some really nice fellowship. That's the way it's oftentimes used today, just talking about kind of this warm, um, friendly uh, sense of being together with other Christians. But we have to understand that the biblical picture of koinonia, of fellowship, is much deeper than just uh, warm friendliness among Christians. It's this idea of partnership, uh, of being a partner together around some cause that you're both committed to, maybe even in some self-sacrificing way. Imagine, for instance, they have these two guys, John and Harry, who want to start a business. And they want to start a fishing business, so they pool their resources, and they buy this nice fishing boat. And they are all in. They are partners with each other because they've each invested their money. They're each investing their time, their energy, their prayers. They're trying to make this fishing business a success. They are partners. They have koinonia in that fishing business because they are both invested in a common cause with a common vision of seeing a successful business built And they are both committed to that cause, even to the point of sacrificing their own comfort, their own ease, their own finances, whatever. That's what it means to have partnership with someone. And Paul is saying here that the Philippians have been partners of his and with one another in the gospel ever since the day they came to know Christ. And the gospel is the cause that draws them together. It's that central rallying cry, that central vision of knowing Christ and making him known that is what they are rallied around when they're partners, when they have a partnership based in the gospel, that they are passionate and they're committed to making Jesus known and to knowing him better. And so that's what it means to be partners in the gospel. And for us, what that means is that we too are partners with each other. We are teammates for the sake of the gospel with other Christians. And we see this idea of teammates or partners live throughout the rest of this passage. I mean, you see uh, Paul's rejoicing that he's confident that God's going to continue the good work that he began in the Philippians. I mean, you think about a team. When you're on a team and you genuinely care for your teammates and for the well-being of the team, you're going to rejoice when your teammates do well. And this afternoon, I know that many of us are going to be watching football. It's an exciting day if you like the NFL, because um, except for one game so far, we have a lot of games this afternoon. As you watch you're going to find that the teams are seeking to work together as a team. And when one player makes a great play, the other players are going to be rejoicing with him because a good play by one player benefits the team as a whole. I mean, you typically don't see if, a, if one wide receiver makes a great catch, breaks a few tackles and scores a touchdown, you generally see his teammates coming around and jumping and high-fiving and they're all excited with him and for him. You don't typically see someone pouting because their teammate was the one who scored on that play. Now, you do see some selfish, prideful wide receivers or other players sometimes who say, just give me the ball. Um, I mean, they think they are the centerpiece of everything. But that's not very common. Because teams function best when they work together, when they're celebrating each other, when everyone is contributing what they have to contribute and pulling their own weight. And so when, when one person on the team is growing it helps the team as a whole grow, too. So that's what Paul is rejoicing in here. And we see Paul's affection for the Philippians. I mean, he, he loves them because they are his teammates, because they're sharing God's grace. And so we bring this back to us, and we're talking about gospel fluency. How does this aspect of, of loving others influence us in our lives? Well, let me give us a couple of practical applications. One practical application of recognizing that we are teammates based on the gospel comes just even how we relate to each other. I, I want us to do something right now. I want, I want you just to look around at the people around you. And as you're looking around, think that, you know what, they aren't just people. They're teammates. I mean, you can wave at them. You can say hi, whatever you want. This is a time you can actually talk and move during a sermon. <laughs> That's fine. But as you're looking around at people, recognize... These are not just random individuals. Even if you don't know them, they aren't just random individuals who happen to be gathered here at the same time that you are. If they are Christians and you're a Christian, they are your teammates in the gospel. That we are on the same team, and we're sharing the same vision of wanting to know Christ and make him known. And that, that gives us a vested interest in each other's lives. That makes church very different than, say, attending a movie theater. Because you go to a movie theater, you may have about the same number of people you have in here. You're all gathered there. But in a movie theater, you aren't really interested in what's going on around you. You're interested in the show that the movie theater is putting on for you. You're spectators there. And many times that's how people approach church, as spectators. I'm there for me and Jesus. I'm there to receive whatever services and show the church puts on that day. And then you leave and that's it. But we have to recognize that God designed church to be a partnership among Christians that when you are here, you're not here just for yourself or just for Jesus, but you're here with and for one another because we are a team. And if you are here just to just attend church and that's it, um, I mean, that's, that's a good starting point. But I also want to help you recognize that that should not be the end goal. Because in terms of the team that's surrounding, surrounding the gospel, doing that is kind of like being an NFL player who's never working on developing themselves to help the team. They're never spending time in the weight room. They're not watching video. They aren't watching what they eat. They aren't studying the playbook. I mean, they're just trying to show up and contribute what they can, but they're not contributing a whole lot. What God is looking for and what Paul is referencing here is being partners and teammates for the sake of the gospel who are all carrying their weight, contributing what they have to contribute. We all have something huge to contribute, so I want to encourage us... As we look around church, as we interact with others, to think about how can I build others up? How can I demonstrate and show love there? Because as we show that love, we will be growing in our application of the gospel, which grows us in gospel fluency. Now, a second practical application from being teammates with other Christians is in the area of conflict and competition. See, many times churches have this kind of intrinsic sense of competition with other churches. That we are focused on what we are doing here. I sometimes call that the mentality of the freedom's Fiefdom. That we're focused on what's going on here, and we aren't very concerned about what's going on in the rest of the kingdom of God. And at times we can even get the sense of competition where we want to be doing better than what's going on at the church down the street or across town. But that's not a biblical mindset. Because if we're all on the same team fighting for the same cause, we will be rejoicing when God's doing great things down the street, even if we aren't directly involved in that. Because we're all on the same team. We should be cheering each other on. And sometimes it's easy for churches or for well-meaning individual Christians to get on these soapboxes where they spend so much of their time tearing others down, tearing other Christians down, because they, they differ on some relatively minor point. Now, there certainly are times that we need to call people back to Scripture. When people are straying out in the left field or churches are going astray, it is appropriate and important and loving to point them back to Scripture and point them, you know, you need to refocus here a little bit here. But we do that in a very loving way. I I think about in my family, um, Micaiah, our son, is four years old right now. And it seems like since he turned four a few weeks ago, he's been trying to stretch his wings a little bit. Uh, try out newfound independence, and oftentimes it manifests itself in the form of disobedience and disrespect. And can anyone else identify with that at all? Or is that just my family? Um, but that's something that we experience sometimes. And as a loving father, I can't just let him keep doing that. I have to call him to account there with sometimes even some tough love. Uh, one of the main forms of, of correction is timeouts in this room. So he has to go up there. I start the timer for a couple minutes and say, I'll be back here when the timer goes off. And every time I go back up there, we have a routine that we've developed. We sit together and I tell Micaius, please sit, sit down. I mean, don't lay down. Don't run around. Sit there and look me in the eye. And then we have a conversation about what took place. And then we pray about it. Pray that God will help him not make those bad decisions again. And then just not intentionally, but we've just developed this routine of how I end that. Because I always want to affirm my love for him. So at the end, I always say, Micaius, I love you. And and then it goes on to be like, you know what, because I love you, I can't just let you keep making these bad decisions and disobeying and being disrespectful to people without any sort of consequences. I want to help you learn not to do that. And a part of that is why we have timeouts like this. But that's love. Because it's not loving just to let someone go out in the left field and make a mess of their lives. And granted, he's only forced, so there's only so much mess he can make. But, but it's the principle I'm talking about here. It's the same for other Christ followers, the same for churches. That there are times when we need to express tough love, pointing back to Scripture. But still, it's done in love. Now, I think about um, this last week. I was on Facebook and saw a Facebook post from one of my friends, a guy named Jake. He's a campus director for Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ, at the college where I graduated from in Minnesota. And I really like what he shared here. I'm just going to share it and then talk about it for just a minute. He says, While in my own meetings today in the student union, I saw some of our Crew students walking through the gospel with other students. I saw staff sharing the gospel with students. And I was able to see a crew student praying with a girl who I found out later had just trusted Christ. My job, he says, is pretty sweet. And I think, what a beautiful, joyful thing to be in that place where you're able to look around and see these people over here sharing the gospel. And these people over here talking about Jesus. And this person over here committing to Christ for the first time. I think that is such a beautiful thing. I think, you know what, that should be the mentality we have Even if we are not the ones who are seeing God work right here, right now, in this specific way, if we look down the street or in another Christian's life and see God doing great things, we should rejoice with Him because we are on the same team. Now, as we wrap up today's idea on gospel fluency and and how it fills us with love for others, I want to point out something important in learning languages. It's one thing to learn in a classroom setting. And this is... For all intents and purposes, it's kind of like a classroom setting right now because I'm talking and you're listening. But in a classroom setting, you can learn a lot of very helpful and essential stuff in learning a language. But nothing replaces actually being in an environment where you're immersed in that new language. My hope and my prayer is that we as a church can be a place that people have immersion experiences in the gospel. I want to share just one more example about how being immersed or experiencing something in real life compares with being in a classroom. I got an email on Friday from a friend here at the church, and I gave him a call and said, hey, can I use this for a sermon illustration? He wasn't planning, to, planning for it to be an illustration, but it works. He was talking about how he, has, uh, he was at work, and there was this group email that went out among his coworkers, and it was asking, okay, whoever took my grapes out of the refrigerator and ate them, Can I please have my Tupperware container back? So that's what the email said. And my friend, I mean, there were a couple back and forths there. And and so that's the context. Let me read um, what my friend wrote in this email. He said, I thought I'd share this because it reminded me of a couple Sundays ago when you spoke about forgiveness. I found it interesting how my reaction to the group email was anger that someone had stolen something as insignificant as a container of grapes from the refrigerator. I've had stuff stolen from there before, so it just got under my skin. So much so, they sent her an email back chastising that unknown person for taking her property. She could have easily commiserated with me and jumped on the bandwagon, but she didn't. She just told me she understood what it was like to be hungry and simply wanted her container back. It made me step back and reconsider my position on a lot of things I've thought about lately, even though I was so sure my position and my anger were justified, but now I don't think they were. We talk about forgiveness. But how many of us really exercise it? Anyway, I ended up responding to her that her response was really refreshing and told her about your sermon about forgiveness and that her words had taught me a lesson today. And as I was talking with this friend on the phone yesterday, um, we were talking about how, you know what, it's one thing to hear things in a setting like this. I mean, you can hear them, you can learn them, they can become head knowledge, but it's another thing to actually see it lived out. And again, my prayer is that we will be a place here that models love, models forgiveness, models gospel fluency, because as people are immersed in that environment, it will become contagious. And that's kind of similar to Paul's prayer here at the end of Philippians chapter one verses nine through 11. He says, "This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight." So that you may be able to discern what is best, may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's praying here that their love for God, their love for others will be growing. They'll grow in their, in their knowledge so that they'll be able to make wise decisions, that they'll grow in their holiness. He wants to see them grow. And, and we know that part of growing is applying the gospel in the context of a loving, gospel-fluent Christian community. May that be a place like this. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for the gospel. And as we talk about the gospel, it's so easy to know in our head, but to struggle to really apply it to our lives, especially this topic of forgiveness, this topic of love. We know that we all have people in our lives who drive us crazy, people who frustrate us and discourage us. And um, Lord, there are people who are just difficult people. And we also recognize in us this sense of competition at times where we want to be better than others. But I pray that you will help us to grow as teammates for the sake of the gospel. That, Lord, you will help us to set aside our own selfish ambitions and our own agendas and to really focus in on you and how we can build each other up. Lord, for each one of us, may our love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we may be able to discern what is best and that we may grow in being pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And we pray these things for his glory and his praise and in in his name. Amen.